Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. Turn to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. We'll be looking at chapter 2 again today. Revelation chapter 2. As we walk through the Revelation, we're at the church of Pergamon. Remember that in your list, uh, there's that chart of the church ages, and we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, next week, about that church age and the Pergamon church age. But we're at the church of Pergamon, which is the third of those churches that Jesus writes to. And remember that whenever we're studying this, that it, it applies to a church age, it applies to individual churches, and also applies to our individual hearts and lives. So listen to the word of God when it says in verse 12 of chapter 2, And to the angel in Pergamon write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some in the same way that hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore... Or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows, but he who receives it. The first thing we want to see about this letter is always who it is that writes it. We know that Jesus writes every one of these letters, but he always identifies himself in some way with some characteristic that's going to be very important to that church. There in in chapter 12 and verse uh, 12, he says this, the one who writes this letter to this church is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. What is the sharp two-edged sword? Back over in chapter 1, he explained a little more and a little later in this, in this letter. He says, the sharp two-edged sword is that two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. That sharp two-edged sword comes forth from his mouth, or it's talking about, it is the Word of God. The Word of God is the sharp two-edged sword. In Hebrews 4.11, it talks about that, that the Word of God, the Bible, this Word of God, is sharper than any two-edged sword. This is the Word of God. The Word of God, the words of Jesus, what He speaks, what He gives, and how blessed we are to have it. Amen? We are living in a blessed time that we can have the Word of God and hold it in our hands and carry it around with us. And we have it in different forms. You can carry it on your phone even if you want to. Amen? And you have the Word of God everywhere. The Word of God is so very, very important. It is the standard. It is the plumb line whereby each and every one of us are going to be judged. If you know anything of any books and you study anything, please 
Make sure that you study this word because this is the one that's going to matter when it comes to eternity. Amen. All those other books you're, you're studying may be good for you right now, but this book is good for you right now and for all eternity. And whenever it comes that you stand before Almighty God and whenever Jesus is going to judge you as he is judged, he's going to use this word of God. This very word of God that you hold in your hand is going to be the standard that he uses to judge you by. So you want to make sure that you know this word of God. And it's important that he says this to the church Bergamon because there's some issues that he's going to deal with and some things he's talking about in judgment for them that's going to be very important that they understand and know that he speaks forth the word of God. After he introduces himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, the word of God, he then goes and gives that word of commendation. He always gives a word of commendation except for one church, Laodicea didn't receive that word of commendation. But here he has a word of commendation. It's down there in verse 13. Look what it says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was a martyr for the cause of Christ. He speaks a good word. He says, I know where you dwell. I know this city that you live in. Pergamon was the capital, the Roman capital of Asia. And it was a wonderful, glorious city as far as the world would see and the world could imagine. Whenever Jesus describes this world and this city, he describes it as a throne of Satan where Satan dwells. In other words, Satan is is always working and Satan is moving. But remember this, Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at a time. Did y'all know that? He's not like God. He can't be in all places at all times. Now, he's got plenty of demons who are working for him and around him and about his business. But Satan can only be at one place at one time. And what Jesus says about this city of Pergamon says this city is a place where Satan wants to make his throne. It's the place where Satan hangs out. It's a place where Satan finds a place that he can do what he wants to do and have rulership and power over that particular city. And if there's one place that he'd want to be in the world, it is in the place of Pergamon. Now, whenever you are a Christian and you're set apart unto God and you're a child of God, you don't really want to dwell in the place where Satan has his throne. Amen? Matter of fact, that might be a good reason to leave town is because Satan has his throne. But they don't leave town. They're supposed to stay there. They're supposed to be there. And he says, I know where you dwell. I know the difficulty of that situation that you live in. Now, why would, why would Jesus describe this particular city as the throne of Satan or where Satan dwells? Well, many different theologians say different reasons or different things. One of the things is because it was a place of, of worship of false gods. All the Greek gods, every one of them had a temple there, whether it be Jupiter or be Zeus or whether it be Bacchus or whoever it might be. All of them had places of worship there. So any corner that you wanted to, it wasn't a Baptist church on those corners like in, in our city, but any place you went there, there was a place of worship. And all this worship is a worship of false gods. But remember what Paul says about the worship of false gods. It's not really the worship of false gods. It's the worship of demons. The worship of a false god is the worship of a demon. So he says where all of these temples are and where all this is happening, there's this worship of all these demons. And so if this is a place of worship of demons, it's certainly a place where Satan's power, Satan's hand would be working in a place that he'd feel very comfortable. 
Matter of fact, one of the key demons that would be there, or the key gods there, is the, is the god called Aclapicus. Aclapius. Aclapius is the god of healing. Did y'all know that? And he was known as the Pergamon god, the god of healing. And what it was is his temple was considered a hospital. Any of his temples were, were the hospitals where people would show up. Now, you know, we have, we have places where we have hospitals now that are, that are expert hospitals. If somebody gets cancer or they go to MD Anderson or they go somewhere else, this was the place in that secular world, this was the place under that control where this God was considered the hospital. Matter of fact, everybody would go to those temples, and when they would go to those temples, they went there in order to be healed. In order to be healed. And do you know how they were healed? They would go in at night and they would lay in the temple. And whenever they would lay in that temple, there were non-venomous snakes that were all in the temple. And the, the tradition was, and belief was, that they went and laid down in the temple. And one of those snakes came by them and touched them during the night that they would be healed. Now that sounds more like uh, mythology than it does, uh, or superstition than it does medicine, doesn't it? But that's what their belief was. That's what their thought was. And that was the God of the Pergamons, along with all these other gods. Well, it's not only the fact that it was a place where gods and false gods were worshipped. It was also a place of tremendous learning. Tremendous learning. Their library was famous because they had over 200,000 parchment. 200,000 rolls of parchment. Having all those books made. Now, you remember about parchment, don't you? First of all, there was, there was called something called papyrus. The first writing thing they would write on was called papyrus. It was made from the bulrushes of Egypt. Bulrushes of Egypt were dried out, and they would draw, and they would write on papyrus. The only problem was it would dry out really quickly. As soon as they got it, it would begin to deteriorate. So that's why they had so many scribes that were writing the Scripture over and over again on papyrus. But whenever the the king of the Greeks, who was here in Pergamon, he loved learning and he loved the library. So he tried to hire out the librarian from uh, Alexandria down in Egypt. He was the greatest librarian. He tried to hire him out to come and work for him. When the king of Egypt found out about it, he forbid him from going. But not only did that, he was so angry at the king of the Greeks that he forbid them to sell them any more papyrus, any more bulrush to be dried out. So this great king of the Greeks, who is accumulating all these books, had to find him another way in order to be able to have a writing place. And, and what he did, he developed uh, parch, uh, parchment. Uh, parchment was actually the fact that it was going to be dried animal skin. When he couldn't get papyrus, he developed parchment. And parchment was actually developed here in the city of Pergamon so that they could continue their learning. They could continue to build in their libraries. And over 200,000, what we consider books, or parchment, were there in Pergamon. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes when the education level goes up in a society... It certainly does not bring people closer to God, but in many ways, it causes them to go further away from God. Did you hear what I said? Whenever people get learned, sometimes in the midst of that learning, if it's not sanctified learning, education and learning can cause you to be prideful, doesn't it? It causes you to be puffed up. And therefore, when people learn and they don't have a sanctified learning, they don't understand that their learning ought to cause them to be closer to God, it can cause them to be further away from God. 
Any of you who have ever been to college, I guarantee you, unless you were in a special school, if you've ever been to college, you've had some professor somewhere, usually a sociology professor, a philosophy professor, or somebody who's going to tell you that there is no God. He or she figured it out. Aren't we comforted by that? You're going to have some professor who's going to tell you they're atheist, agnostic. Many of our, our colleges are controlled by atheists and agnostic. And young people, you better be prepared in your faith when you leave to go to college, especially if you're in a secular school. You better be prepared because they're going to challenge you on every front about whether or not you, what you believe is true or whether it's myth and whether it's for poor, dumb people to believe those kind of things. They're going to try to hinder you in every way. Well, I want to tell you something. The Christian faith stands up to any test. Some of the most brilliant people who've ever lived in this world have been Christians, and they can defend their faith and their apologists in regard to that. Do not worry about the atheists and the agnostics, but beware, they are out there. I, was, I watched that, that movie again, God is Not Dead. I think you young people, y'all need to watch that movie about every three months. Y'all, y'all see the movie? You need to see that movie because that's where you're headed. Whenever this professor who stands up and is going to say, wants his whole class to say that God is dead before they ever proceed from that. And this young man stands up and reveals to the class and helps the class understand God is not dead. He is not dead. But whenever you're dealing with an educated group and whenever you're dealing with these people who feel like they know more, they're smarter than God. Now, whenever you get to be smarter than God, that's dangerous. Amen. Because you're not smarter than God, you just think you are. Let me show you something what it says in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what it says. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where, the wise, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world, made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I want to tell you something. If you got to choose a side to be on, choose God's side. Amen. (laughs) You choose God's side because God says that he can take his foolishness and he can confound the wisdom of man. There's not a man in the world who is smarter than God. There's not a man in the world who even compares to that. There's not a man in the world who can even perceive of who God is and to understand an inkling of what God knows. You need to grasp that and understand, but hold on a second. But whenever you find a place of learning, when you place, when you have a place that people are educated, Whenever they get to that point, they're either going to let that push them closer to God or further away from God. You need to get that in your heart and mind. Now, one of the reasons when I was uh, being, uh, as a preacher, I, I got my, my bachelor's degree, I got my master's degree, and one thing, I wanted to get my doctor's degree. 
I, nobody calls me Dr. Amos or Dr. Mac. Brother Mac is fine for me. Don't call me that. But I wanted to get it. You know why? Because I want to make sure I had as much education or more education than most people so that I could stand, and I'm not saying it out of ignorance or because I'm uneducated, that education is wrong. You've got to be careful of it or all those kind of things. But the fact that I've had probably about as much schooling as anybody, and I can tell you this, God is still alive. Amen? <laughs> And he's still fine, and he, he, isn't even, he isn't even sick, I promise you. He is fine, and you don't have to be intimidated by the people of this world. But in that situation, even back in this time, even back in this time, he says that because of that ha- happening, because of that being taking place, you have to be careful. Satan finds him a place. Say, one of Satan's thrones he finds is a place of higher learning. It's a place of higher learning. Be careful. That he not influence you. I've seen many college students go there and they're on fire for God. By the time they get out, they don't even know where they stand in relationship to God. Be careful. Grow in your faith and know your faith and stand in those principles. And you don't have to be intimidated by or fearful of anybody. Because here's the key. One day, you're going to all stand before God Almighty. And you're going to be in a whole lot better shape than somebody else who doesn't believe there's a God. And that's all that's going to matter. Okay? All that's going to matter is where do you stand in that time of eternity? And standing with God is the place where you want to be. Well, he says that it's a place of the throne room. And he says, but here's the good thing. You have remained faithful. You have remained faithful. You have not denied my name. You have not denied my faith. Even in the days of Antipas. Antipas was a leader of the church of Pergamon. And just like we said last week, Polycarp, that he was killed... He became a martyr, so was Antipas. Antipas was killed. Matter of fact, it's recorded that Antipas was probably the first martyr, the first Christian ever killed by the Roman government. He was first. And do you know how he was killed? He was slowly roasted in a bronze kettle. Could you imagine that? Think about that. Slowly roasted. Didn't have his head cut off. He wasn't burnt, burnt up to death. It would be just, a, as Polycarp said, a short time. He was slowly roasted, but he was a faithful martyr. He was a faithful witness. And he said even whenever Antipas had to go through that time, and even though he was persecuted like that, even though it's where Satan dwells and Satan's having his hand in that, you remained faithful. You did not deny your faith. And he says, I commend you for that. If we ever go through a time of persecution, the Lord Jesus will commend us that we are faithful, even if it may mean that we have the danger of death or persecution. That was his word of commendation. But then he gives this word of correction. He actually gives two words of correction. But I'm going to take one this week, and I want to share another one with you. We're going to use Sunday, two Sundays for Pergamma because it's so very important what's happening in the church and the church age at this particular time. The first of those... Things he says as a correction or something I have against you. In verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you because, one, you have there some, and you circle the word some. It's not all the church. It's not all of this church that has it, but, but some people in the church have begun to practice or hold to the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam. And he goes on and says, Who kept teaching Balaam to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idol and to commit acts of immorality. Well, how many of you remember Balaam? You ever remember hearing about Balaam in the Bible? What's the one thing that everybody knows about Balaam? 
a talking donkey. That's it. A talking donkey. You'll find the story of Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. All right, Numbers 22 through about three or four chapters. But let me tell you the story, and then we'll get to what he's talking about. Balaam was a prophet or a seer. It's really kind of hard to understand who Balaam is. It seems as though he's a prophet of God, but he's certainly not a sanctified prophet of God. Because Balaam is always willing to take a dollar in order to determine whether or not he would curse somebody or he would bless somebody. You get it? He felt as he had this power to curse a people or a person or to bless a people or person. And therefore, and he would do it for money. Well, Balak, who was the king of the Moab, Moabites, he was Moab's king. He was a fearful of Israel whenever they were making this trek and whenever they were conquering these kings. And he was very fearful of them. So he knew about Balaam and he sent some of his messengers to Balaam and said, Balaam, I will pay you money if you will come and curse this people. These people were the children of Israel, God's people. If you will come and curse them, I will pay you money. Well, Balaam goes, and he has a prayer time at night, and God says, no, you're not supposed to go. So Balaam said, no, I'm not going to go. Well, Balak didn't like that, so he said, well, send back more more, uh, prominent messengers and tell him I'll pay him more money. And ask him to come. Well, he go, they go back to Balaam. And Balaam says, well, let me go ask God again. Well, he should never ask God again. If God tells you no the first time, it pretty well means no. Amen. <laughs> you don't need to ask him a second. But he goes back again to talk to God. And God tells him this. says, go. Not that God wanted him to go. But he keeps asking. says, you go. But you're only going to speak what I tell you to speak. So Balaam then gets on his donkey. And he's making his way to Balak. And that's whenever... The angel of the Lord stood in front of the donkey and Balaam. But Balaam didn't see the the angel. Only the donkey did. But the donkey refused to go. He goes off the path to start with, and then Balaam beats him, gets him back on the path. They go through a place, and he's about to go through this gap. And whenever that that donkey sees that angel again, and, and he presses Balaam's leg up against the wall, and he's aggravated about that, so he beats the donkey. And the final time, he's trying to get the donkey to go, and the donkey just finally lays down. He's not going to go anywhere. And man, Balaam gets out there. He's going to beat that donkey when the donkey all of a sudden speaks to him. And says, why are you beating me? That'll get your attention. (laughs) I guarantee if we had a talking donkey up here, we'd have a crowd. Wouldn't we? And and he he says, why are you beating me? And and funny thing, reading that story, it's very humorous. Balaam just begins to carry on this conversation with a donkey like he talked to him all the time. And basically, basically, the donkey says, the reason that I lay down, he said, all these years I've been faithful to carry you everywhere you've been. The reason I lay down is because I've seen the angel of the Lord, and, and I'm, not gonna, I'm not going past that. And the angel comes and reveals himself to Balaam and basically says, if it weren't for that donkey, you would be dead. You would be dead. I bet Balaam had a different feeling about that donkey from that point on. Well, God says, okay, you go on. Now, the reason he, reason he was because God really didn't want him to go. You go on. But you're only going to speak the word that I have you to speak. Well, Balaam comes to Balak. And first thing, Balak takes him up to a high mountain so he can overlook the children of Israel so he can cast a curse upon them. All right? Well, Balak gets, Balaam gets up there. They offer a sacrifice. And he opens his mouth thinking he's going to curse the children of Israel when all he does is speak a blessing. Now, let me tell you a good thing about that. Whenever anybody's wanting to curse you, 
Before Almighty God, they can turn curses. He can turn curse into blessing. Amen? <laughs> I love that. When somebody wants to curse me, it doesn't matter. God turns curses into blessing. He has the power to do it. And old Balaam, every time he opens his mouth, he just, and Balaam got mad and said, what are you doing? I'm paying you to curse them. And you're sitting here doing the blessing. Takes them to another spot and says, here's your second chance now. I want you to get it this time, right? So they offer a sacrifice. He opens his mouth. And once again, he speaks out a blessing. A blessing of God over Israel. Balak cannot figure out what in the world. They give him a third shot at it to try to do that. And once again, he cannot speak a curse over the children of Israel. He only speaks a blessing. And Balak gets so upset, he just throws everything down. And he says, I give up. And God says, I'm not through with Balaam yet. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. And read it. And God, through Balaam, begins to tell what's going to happen to Moabites. And he also gives one of the greatest prophecies about Jesus Christ and the Messiah coming that there is anywhere in the Scripture. It is an unbelievable thing. So it looks like in that story that everything works out okay until you come to this passage here and it says that I have a few things against you and one of those is that some of your people are teaching the prophecy of Balaam. Teaching the prophecy of Balaam. And it goes on and says the teaching uh, that he kept, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Well, what's that talking about? Most people don't know that part of the story, do they? No, they don't. Well, let me tell you about the rest of the story. Following this episode with him, Balaam, you find that they have what is called the sin of Peor. The sin of Peor. And, and this is where the children of Israel, the men of Israel, began to be seduced by the Moabite women. The Moabite women came in and seduced them, caused them to have immoral acts. Not only that, influenced them so that they began to sacrifice and to pay homage to false gods. All of this happens. It is one of the lowest times that you could ever imagine in Israel as they're traveling towards the promised land. But you don't really realize how that's happening until you turn to Numbers chapter 30, verse 16. Listen to what it says. I'll read it to you. Chapter 31, I'm sorry, verse 16. Here's what it says. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. You hear what that said? The reason that they began to practice the sin of Peor, the reason they began to have uh, fall into this temptation, began to compromise their life, is because Balaam is the one who told Balak what to do. Balak basically said this, if I can't curse them, we will corrupt them. If we can't curse them, we will corrupt them. And so he tells Balak, listen, God's not going to let me, God's not going to let me curse them. And so in order to get that money that you owe me, I'll tell you how you can really get the children of Israel. You need to get the Moabite women as beautiful as they are to go and to seduce the men. And if you'll seduce those men with those Moabite women through immorality, they will cause them to begin to worship false gods and God will judge his people. You hear that? What was the, what is, what is the teaching of Balaam? The teaching of Balaam is that the church, that the people of God, that believers in God would be compromisers. That they would compromise, that they would tolerate evil. That they would let 
seduction and everything caused them to move away from following God. See, Satan is smart and he realizes that he's going to attack every way he can the church. The church of Ephesus, what he tried to do there is to cause their hearts to grow cold. Last week, we talked about the church of Smyrna. What was it? He came as a roaring lion, a roaring lion in order to persecute them and intimidate them and to pull them down. But that didn't stop the church. Now, he comes and he decides that he's going to use his oldest and best known method of causing people to falter, and that is deception. Instead of like the roaring lion coming in the front door, he's the slithering serpent who comes in the back door. Oh, yeah. You remember him, don't you? In the book of Genesis, you remember him? The old deceiver to get them to make the wrong choices, to do the wrong things, to act the wrong way. That's the way he first tempted Adam and Eve. And he goes back to his old ways and causes that temptation to come in the back door. And they fall into immorality. And they fall into idol worship. And they fall into all kind of practices that are ungodly. And that's what he he teaches as the prophecy or the teaching of Balaam. So what he's saying here is, this is the problem that's happening in the church. The church has become compromised. That some in the church are practicing ungodly and immoral things. That some in the church are, are eating stuff sacrificed to idols and drinking things sacrificed to idols. And, and they're not set apart unto God. And they're not the people that they ought to be. There's a problem because they are like the world. See, one of the methods that Jesus knows, I mean, that Satan knows that will hinder the church of Jesus is this. If he can make the world look like the church and the church look like the world, the church loses its influence. Did you hear that? If Satan can make the church look like the world and the world look like the church, the church no longer becomes a change agent. We don't influence our society. We don't change our society. We don't make a difference in their life. Why? Because we are just like them. And that's what had happened at Pergamon. That's one of the things he said, listen, you've just, some of your people are compromising. Some of your people are are no longer standing where they ought to stand. And they're doing things that are ungodly and things that are in the world. That cannot happen. When I was... Dealing with young people, it used to be, I had young people all the time in college, she used to come to me all the time, they'd say, they basically asked this question, how much can I live like the world, look like the world, smell like the world, do like the world, and still be saved? That's what they ask. Hey, how much can I be like the world, live like the world, do like the world, and still be saved? They want to be saved, but they want to know how much they could live like the world. Instead of asking the question, how much can I live like Jesus, be set apart unto Jesus, and walk with Christ? They weren't asking that. Well, let me tell you something. As I have grown older, that's not the question. That's not the question the young people are asking. That's the question everybody's asking. That's the question the church is asking. Constantly, constantly. You deal with the issues of how much can I do? How much can I be like the world? How can I live like the world? How can I be in this thing? How can I do that? And still be saved. That's not the question we ought to be asking. The question we ought to be asking is how much can I do to be like Jesus to make a difference? Here's the problem. We have lost our influence in the world. And you want to know something? The world loves it. 
That person out there loves Satan, loves us. You know why? Because listen, those people who are out there in the world who live like that and they see Christians live like that, they don't want to have anything to do with the church because they say, man, I do the same thing they do and they do the same thing I do and at least I'm genuine, I'm not a hypocrite. They're hypocrites. They go down there and they come do the same things I do and they go down there and they worship God all the time. But, but at least I'm honest. At least I'm honest. The church has got to be set apart. We've got to be set apart. We've got to be different. And we've got to stop asking the question, how much can I be like the world and still be saved? Well, here's the answer to that. He says in verse 16, very quickly, here's the answer. Repent, therefore. Repent. That's the answer to it. I'm coming quickly. And I'm going to make war with you by the sword of my mouth. In other words, you better make sure that your life lives up to the standard of the word of God. If you're not living according to the word of God, you're going to be judged by that word. But then he gives a promise. And here's a promise. He gives two promises. This one applies to this particular part. He says this. If you will overcome and you'll change, I will give to you some of the hidden manna. The hidden manna. You remember manna is the, the, the... Bread of life, the bread of heaven that God gave to the children of Israel whenever they were in the wilderness. He provided it for them for 40 years for them. But it was everything they needed. The hidden man is the manna that was taken and put in the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that was one of the things that was in the Ark of the Covenant. A commemoration of what God had done and his provision. That he has ample to provide for everything that is needed. Well, here's what God says. If you'll realize that you're doing the wrong thing and you'll realize that you're going the wrong way and you realize that you're acting like you ought not act, if you'll just repent, turn from that, I will reward you and I will bless you by giving of the hidden man. In other words, I will provide every spiritual blessing that you need. I'll give to you spiritual blessings that you could never imagine. I'll pour out to you things to satisfy your heart. Because if you're doing some of these things and act some of you, there's obviously something in your life that's missing. There's something in your life that you're trying to fill in. There's something in your life that shouldn't be there, but you are trying to do it. Listen, if you will not look at it to be in the practice of immorality, and if you look at it that it's not going to be the practice of Satan, if you'll look at it to not be those ungodly things, if you'll just repent and come to me, I'll meet every need of your heart. I'll fill up your life. I'll cause you to be overflowing in your spirit. So instead of trying to fill that, instead of trying to be ministering to the outside sources that are not where Christ wants you to be, just come to him and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've acted that way. I'm sorry I've lived like that way. I'm sorry I've been that way. And allow him to come, and he will give you the hidden manna that will meet the spiritual need of your heart and life. If we're going to have revival... In our day and time, if we're going to have revival in our church, it's going to be because we're willing to be honest, amen? We're willing to put our lives before Almighty God and say, God, if I'm letting any of the world be in me, and if I'm letting the world influence me, I want to be different. I want to be set apart. I want to be different. I want Jesus to be pleased and honored in my life. And I'm willing to repent of that and let Jesus do all that he needs to do in my life. There's a second need, a second problem that the church has we'll deal with next week. And it's, uh, it's very, it has to do with that, the church age and the time it is and Constantine and all the people I talked to you about that. We'll talk about that when it's talking about the teachings of the Nicolaitans. But today we're dealing with this teaching of Balaam. And where are you? We're all going to have to stand before God and give an account. Amen? If there's something in your life that ought not be there some way in the world, something you've compromised, you need to make that right. And God will bless you, give you of the hidden manna.
That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.